0: Let's pray. Father, we come to you, Lord, on this Sunday, and we marvel at your grace that you've lavished on us. Lord, we, we deserve nothing from you but judgment. We are unclean people, and we live among unclean people. We live in a country that is, in many ways, corrupting the rest of the globe. And yet you see fit to lavish your grace on us and even allow us to call you Father, and we thank you. We know it's because of the blood of your Son, Jesus, our Savior, and we're so grateful. And Lord, we come to a text today that is hard. It's hard because it's someone we have come to love and admire, David, this mighty warrior for you. blows it big time and now it's time to face the music (laughs) it's time to face the consequences and lord as we go through this text today i i pray that our hearts would be pricked that we would be cognizant and keenly aware of our own sin and the ramifications that it has but first and foremost the ramification of, of tarnishing your glory And so, Father, give us ears to hear as your word goes forth. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, if you would, turn to 2 Samuel chapter 12. 2 Samuel chapter 12. Last week in 2 Samuel 11, we saw David fall big time. He commits a heinous sin, that is adultery, with a married woman, Bathsheba. Not his wife, of course. And then he tries to cover it up. And in so doing, he kills Uriah and anyone really that wasn't directly linked because he doesn't want anyone to know. Nine months have passed before 2 Samuel, at least nine. (laughs) I, I have a feeling David thought it's all taken care of, everything is fine now, it's quiet on the Eastern Front my wife is Bathsheba. I brought it in no one suspected it's all great and yet there are consequences for sin consequences is defined as a result or an effect of an action or condition english has very various idioms or idiomatic expressions to indicate consequences and the effect such as the well it's the price you have to pay or you reap the harvest one's own doing stew in your own juice I like that one or you, you can't unring the bell but these are idiomatic phrases that convey you're going to reap what you sow it's a biblical concept and David may have thought he got away with it but in chapter 12 the Lord is going to take a paddle and he is going to spank very very hard and the ramifications for David are enormous so let's look at the text. We'll start in chapter 12, verse 1, and we'll read the first seven verses, and then we'll continue. So the Lord sent Nathan. Now, this is significant. Four times David will send someone in chapter 11. He'll send for Bathsheba twice, he'll send for Uriah, he'll send for Joab, but this time God is going to do the sending And there's only one other place in all of Scripture where God sends a prophet. So you must sit up and take nourishment because this is very significant. He sends Nathan to David. When he came to David, Nathan said, there were two men in a certain city, one rich, the other poor. The rich man had a great many flocks and herds, but the poor man had nothing except for a little bobo, a little lamb. He raised it. I mean, he even named it grew up alongside him and his children. He used to eat food and drink from his cup and sleep in his arms. Oh, it's just lovely, right? It's a 4-H picture. (laughs) It was just like a daughter to him. When a traveler arrived at the rich man's home, he did not want to use one of his own sheep or cattle to feed the traveler who had come to visit him, so instead he took the poor man's lamb and cooked it for the man who had come to visit him. When David heard this. He became very angry. He said to Nathan, surely, Watch what he says. As the Lord lives, the Lord hasn't been on the lips of David for some time. You go through 2 Samuel, it's been chapters since we've referred to the Lord out of David's mouth. Surely as the Lord lives, the man who did this deserves to die. Because he committed this cold-hearted crime, he must pay for the lamb four times over. And then Nathan said to David, You are the man. Let's back up. Nine months, as we said, have passed, and we have here a confrontation. The Lord will send Nathan, the prophet, to confront. There are several important things here as you look at this. When you're confronting sin, timing is very important. (laughs) Nathan wasn't sent by God when the act of adultery had been committed. Nathan didn't go when Nathan, when Uriah, excuse me, had been killed, or when Bathsheba had announced the pregnancy, or or when the child was directly born. No, 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 no. Now Nathan is sent. Chuck Swindoll in his commentary writes, let the grinding wheels of sin do their full work and then step in. (laughs) David needs to soak in the ramifications of this for a little bit. And then God moves, and he sends Nathan. So confronting sin, certainly timing is important. Who goes is also important. Reminded of Proverbs 27. Faithful are the wounds of a friend, but deceitful are the kisses of an enemy. Who better for God to send than Nathan? It was Nathan back in 1 Samuel 7 that he pronounced the, 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 the Davidic blessing. And all that it entails. I mean, this this guy is perfect for this. Sorry, Second Samuel, right? And so here's Nathan sent. I was reminded years ago, and living in a dorm, a friend had confided in me some information, and I divulged it. <laughs> and that friend confronted me. I'll never forget it. It was hard to hear. But he said that that was wrong. And we're friends, and so I'm confronting you. Otherwise, I would just let it go. And, and I, I value our friendship. I have learned a valuable lesson that day. Faithful are the wounds of a friend. Nathan had an, a platform that no one else had in the life of David to say, you've blown it big time. Notice that as well, we here we have a prophet from God. So you have confrontation that is spirit-led and of courage. It's interesting, the ancient historian, first century Jewish historian Josephus, when he recounts this tale, he adds that Nathan was a man of tact and understanding. <laughs> I love it. And indeed he is, in order to confront. And for us as believers, confronting other believers is in unrepentant sin is an obligation that we all have not for the purpose of tearing down but for the purpose of restoration and bringing them back in fellowship with the lord and in the community so nathan goes and he confronts david with a parable or a story one scholar has stated that this parable is a tale of cynicism selfishness destruction and greed Now, as the story unfolds, don't miss the the connections here. For instance, as we see, the poor man's life was characterized by giving, not taking, unlike David. There's an, an innocence and an intimacy between the man and his little Bobo. In fact, we're told that the lamb sleeps in his arms. It's the same term used when David slept with Bathsheba. It's not a coincidence. The connections are being drawn. David is just clueless in understanding what Nathan's doing here. But Nathan's just reeling him in, right? It says that the lamb, notice what the text says, was like a daughter. Bathsheba, bath in Hebrew means daughter. The rich man takes the the other man's lamb, and the same word for took is used of David when he took Bathsheba from Uriah. This isn't a story about infidelity or murder. It's a story about abuse of power. And that's exactly where we are with David. David has used his role as king and has breached what God has so willingly, graciously given to him. Don't miss the hypocrisy. Did you know? Look at David's response. He became angry. And as surely as this man lives, the man who did this deserves to die. No, not according to the Mosaic law. Yes, he has to pay back fourfold. David, you got that right. But no, 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 he doesn't die. But you deserve to die, David. You committed adultery, stone him. You committed murder, stone him. <laughs> David, you're, you're such a hypocrite. Oh, this is awful what has happened. David, you deserve far worse than this rich man. All he did was steal a lamb, which, yes, it was awful, but look what you have done. And David wants to show no mercy, and it's just setting us up. After Nathan tells them, you're the man, right, you the man, he says in verse 7b, this is what the Lord God of Israel has said. Now notice what Nathan delivers from the Lord. I chose you to be king over Israel. I rescued you from the hand of Saul. I gave you your master's house. I mean, these are emphatic in the Hebrew. I did this. This is the Lord speaking. David, let me tell you what I've done for you, lest you forget, which you obviously have, because you should have never invited Bathsheba to the house. I also gave you the house of Israel and Judah. And if all that somehow seems insignificant, I would have given you so much more as well. I wasn't done. Why have you shown contempt? Listen to these words. For the Lord's decrees by doing evil in my sight. You have struck down Uriah the Hittite with the sword, and you've taken his wife to be your own wife. You have killed him with the sword of the Ammonites. Nothing was done in secret. (laughs) David thought he got away with this. And Nathan said, no, no, the Lord has seen it all, David. So now the sword will never depart from your house, for you have despised me by taking the wife of Uriah, the Hittite, as your own. This is what the Lord has said. I'm about to bring disaster on you from inside your own household, right before your eyes. I will take your wives and hand them over to your companion, and he will go to bed with your wives in broad daylight. That is exactly what the companion does, and it's not David's friend. It's his own son, Absalom. And he says, although you have acted in secret, I will do this very thing before all Israel in broad daylight. And David explained to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. You think? good glad you finally got it nathan replies to david yes and the lord has forgiven your sin you're not going to die nonetheless because you have treated the lord with such contempt in this matter the son who has been born to you that's the one that was born out of wedlock right it says to you will certainly die Let's unpack this, and let's look at this text here, because as Nathan's delivering the words from the Lord, we see a first an indictment. I think there are three. The first is ingratitude. The Lord rehearses, and he highlights five areas that the Lord says, this is what I've done for you, and, and you see those in the text, All the way from making, anointing you as king, bringing to the power and the prestige that you have. I did that all for you, David. No one else. You didn't. And again, it's emphatic with the first person singular, I, I, I. So the first indictment is there's ingratitude. The second is you've despised the Lord's words. Look at verse 9. It's loaded. It's key here. He says that you have done, you have despised the word that have been given what is the, the word that's been given? I believe it's the promise to David, of to his throne and his kingdom, and, and all of that entails, and he goes, you've polluted this. You have despised what I've promised you. It's interesting, the Lord in his indictment does not begin with the sin of killing Uriah and the sin of Bathsheba. He begins with, you, you have an evil heart. You have done this to me. <laughs> it's personal, and when it's personal with the Lord, look out, right? And that's the idea. But not only like that, we're told that you despised the Lord. The Lord mentions this here in the text. You, you have despised me. You see this there in verse 10. You despise me by taking the wife. You, you've done this by sinning. It's interesting. That phrase is used of those who tried to rebel against Moses in number 16, And what does God do with them? He wipes them all out. Women and children. You you show contempt for the Lord. You disregard who I am. And it's also used, by the way, uh, to Eli and his sons. Earlier in this journey through the books of Samuel. Eli was told, you, Eli, have despised me. And I'm going to judge you. So there's a disregard for the Lord's word and there's a disregard for the Lord, I would argue, his glory. It's what David said to others. You you, you don't do this. He said to Goliath, you're disdaining the Lord. And David falls into the very thing that he accused Goliath and others of. I mean, think about it. The Lord has invested much in David. David. He's anointed him. He's made him king. He rehearsed some of these things. Look what I've done. You're tarnishing, this is the Lord speaking, you've tarnished my name. I have much invested in you. It's interesting, isn't that the problem with sin? The bottom line with sin is the temptation of the sin is far more tantalizing than God's goodness. Let's face it. If we really think through the implications, David, when you were standing on the rooftop and you were looking over at this woman bathing, you should have said, No, God, you have been so good to me. Why would I ever take another glance? Problem with sin is we find our ways more right than God's. We regard the need for personal satisfaction more important than God's standards. We desire the pleasure of the moment far more significant than God's grace and mercy. We're willing to forget what the Lord has done for us in order to forge our own future, and that's exactly what happens with David. The next time temptation rears its ugly head, and it will. <laughs> for those of us who know Christ, we need to reflect on who we are before Christ. Who has? What has He done for us? And. Who is he, so that when we're tempted, it should serve as a roadblock? And David, there were no roadblocks. He wasn't thinking about the things of the Lord, and all that God has done. And the Lord is going to re- this. He does. He rehearses this first. Let's begin, David. Let me remind you what I've. And you should have been reminded. I mean, that promise that I made with you in Second Samuel should have been engraved on your forehead. Missed. And so, what is the punishment? Notice what the text says starting in verse 10. It says that the sword shall never depart. It's interesting. God works out his justice providentially, allowing David's children to mirror their father's quest for power, resorting in lust, deceit, and violence. Let me just rehearse. David's son Amnon. Remember, Amnon. He, he, he tries to rape his half-sister Tamar who later then when her brother Absalom hears this, kills Amnon. When then that happens, Absalom's cousin Joab kills Absalom. Now David's lost two sons. And then, by the way, when Absalom revolts, he even tries to lead a revolt against his father. We, we told you he he sleeps with his father's concubines and nearly 20,000 Israelis Solomon has him killed oh, you thought your family had problems I mean this is crazy I mean there's, there's rape, there's murder all within the family unit I jokingly said, you, you better hope that if you were an offspring of David, your name did not begin with A, because most of those A's were killed. Uh, this is awful. But do you remember what David said about the guy who took Bobo? Payback fourfold. Amnon, Absalom, Adonijah, and the unnamed boy who just dies. Four. A fourfold verdict David gives is exactly how God will punish him. One dies prematurely in life, the others are violently murdered. Much can be said about the Lord's justice as we look at this, but let me just give you a few things to hang on your beak this morning. You may want to write these down in your notes. The Lord will not allow sin to go unpunished. Galatians 6, let the one who's taught the word share all good things with the one who teaches. Do not be deceived. God is not mocked, for whatever one sows, that he will also reap. If you plant corn, you're going to get corn. It will come, just give it time. And you usually harvest far more than what you planted. <laughs> You, you can't do this. Sin will be dealt with. God, God has to maintain his holiness. And if you're a child of his, if you're a follower of Jesus, uh, he, his reputation is on the line with you being a follower of him. Secondly, the Lord's discipline is just and can be very severe. This is a hard one to swallow, isn't it? here in 2 Samuel 12, we're told, I mean, look, look what the text says. Look at verse 15. Nathan went to his home. <laughs> Done. The Lord strikes the child that Uriah's wife had born to David. The child becomes very ill. David prays to God for the child He fasted. He spends the night lying on the ground the elders of the house stood over him and tried to lift him from the ground. He was unwilling to, re- he refused to eat. He's fasting, he's praying, and on the seventh day, the child dies. And the servants are concerned. You know, David isn't doing well now, here's this news. When David saw, verse 19, that his servants were whispering to one another, he realized the child was dead. So David asked his servants, is the child dead? And they replied, yes, he is dead. This is a hard one. If God is so good and great, you Lord, I I can understand taking out David, but an innocent child—how do you rationalize this in the text? Let me give you a few things to think about as we wrestle with that question. First, it's easy to focus on how horrible the Lord is, because I often hear that, "Oh, you know, the Lord's talk about unjust, cruel God. He should not have done that." Wait a minute. Did you forget what David committed? That was far more heinous. And in fact, the text is very clear that both both Nathan and David see that the death of the child was due to David's sin. Certainly the tragedy reminds us of the seriousness of sin. God is not messing around. Second, the Old Testament teaches that sometimes God punishes children because of the father's sin. Exodus 20 the Lord reminds the Israelites he is a jealous God punishing the children for the sin of the fathers to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me There are only a few times in the Old Testament where God will take out the children because of the punish, of punishing the parents and there is a context for each of those and in each of those the bottom line is there was a blatant rebellion against God's authority and a contextual reason for why the children were eliminated and that leads us to the third because the context here is clear. David has had a growing fascination about being king. Even all the way back in 1 Samuel 18 when he, he takes Saul's daughter, he's given Saul's daughter to be his wife, David says the text says David was pleased to be the son of the son-in-law of the king. He's already thinking And he then accumulates wives, we talked about that last week, and children, which is vital, because having numerous children epitomized the first century world, the ancient world, excuse me. Uh, It was a cultural norm for royalty. It showed their power, it showed their authority. So thus, it's very, I think, very appropriate that God would take out four of David's sons, Chisholm in his commentary writes, it's punishing David's, in punishing David's sons, the Lord brought judgment on the corrupt royal court David had created, an institution that violated at a fundamental level the principles of kingship given in the covenant. This is key. It's key. And and because of what David has done, the Lord says, no, no, I'm gonna pull the rug right out from under you. We also must keep in mind that it's the Lord who gives life. No life exists from, apart from the will of God, and as creator, he has the right to do as he sees fit with all of his creation. And finally, we need to be careful passing judgment on God's ways. <laughs> Remember, he is righteous in all his ways. Woodhouse states, this reality is greater and more reliable than our discomfort. So we read a very heavy thing here, don't we? Wow, this is what God is doing. But as we said, the Lord will not allow sin to go unpunished. The Lord's discipline is just and can be very severe. Also, the Lord is willing to forgive. It doesn't nullify the consequences. I I love Micah 7. It's just a rich text it says who is a god like you pardoning iniquity and passing over transgression for the remnant of his inheritance he does not retain his anger forever because he delights in steadfast love he will again have compassion on us he will tread our iniquities underfoot but you will cast all our sins in the depth of the sea that's our god As hard as all of this is, David is experiencing forgiveness, and we'll get to that in a minute. Well, I mean, the obvious one is what? God could have easily, according to the Mosaic law, zapped David right there on the spot. He could have been pushing up daisies later that afternoon. That's it. You're done. (laughs) But no. God had made a promise to David and his descendants, and God is going to keep that. And despite all this crud with David, and all the tragedies that occur, in fact, chapters 11 and 12 of 2 Samuel is a watershed. It's a turning point in David's ministry, his kingship. Everything goes downhill after this. It just unravels. You see the effects of, of the judgment and his sin, and, and how it just the consequences just permeate through his family, and in his realm. It's sad. And yet, and even in the midst of that, God is gracious and forgives. And that leaves us to one other point. The Lord ultimately assures the repentant servant of his love. Don't miss that. We're gonna see it here in a minute. freely acknowledges one's sin. David says, I have sinned. It's interesting, in Psalm 51, we read portions of it earlier. It's the psalm that David writes after having probably been confronted by Nathan. And listen to verses two and three. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity. Cleanse me from my sin, for I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Two words, I have sinned in the Hebrew. The only two other people who've said that, one was Achan. Remember what happens to Achan and his family. And the other was said of Saul. And now we hear it on the lips of David. There are no buts. You caught that. There's no, well, yeah, but. There's no conditions. There's no blame shifting. There's no justifying. There's no excuse making. There's no whitewashing. There's no sidestepping. It's simply, I have sinned. That's it. Dealing with church discipline, dealing with folks, not that we've had that serious problem yet, uh, when you deal with these issues, you set two people down, I'll tell you, the one I'm looking for is the one who says, yeah, I, I was wrong here. There's, there's no rationalizing, well, I should have done this, but, but yeah, if you had understood the situation, no, that concerns me, that's a red flag. There's none with that, David. David says, I have sinned, done. And as we see here, What happens when his child dies? Look at verse 21 of the text. His servant said to him, what is it you have done? Well, in fact, jump up to verse 19. When David saw that his servants were whispering, we read this, the child's dead. And verse 20, so David got up from the ground, bathed, put on oil, and changed his clothes. He went to the house of the Lord and worshiped. Then when he entered his place, he requested food and ate. And his servant said, How can you do this? He said, Well, he was hoping that this was a conditional promise that the Lord had given. David was hoping that if he prayed and repented, the child would be spared. But it was clear no, there, this is unconditional. This is going to happen. And David accepts. I love the text here that he sought the Lord seven days. Lying on the ground. Not eating. Not having sexual relations. Sounds a little like Uriah. (laughs) Does it not? Finally understanding this is all about the Lord. And this backdrop. Six times we're told the child's dead. The child's dead. Ironic, isn't it? That David's behavior should remind us of Uriah. Upon hearing the news, did you see what David did? He bathes himself, puts on new clothes, and he goes and worships in the tabernacle. It's only after that that he goes to eat. He's been fasting for seven days. It shows the honor to the Lord. It also shows that that David understands, God, you are sovereign. And I bow my knee before you. Oh, David, you had learned that before you went out on that rooftop. But you didn't. That's okay at this point, because God can forgive The consequences are huge. That's not okay. But God forgives. David accepts the decree with love and submission. He says, I know that I'll be with my child someday. Job 1 The Lord gives and the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. What a changed man. Leads us to the second point about genuine repentance. Genuine repentance is accompanied by a spirit of brokenness and humility. Psalm 51, verse 16 says, For you will not delight in sacrifice. I mean, David didn't go to the temple upon hearing that, Nathan, that his son was going to be struck dead. He says, You don't delight in sacrifice. You will not be pleased with the burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. O oh God, you will not despise. Now, look at verse 24. This has all been very heavy. So David comforted his wife Bathsheba. He didn't comfort her when Uriah died. The text tells us only she mourned. He came to her. He went to bed with her. Later she gave birth to a son. Blessed be the name of the Lord. (laughs) God gives them another child, and they name him Solomon, which means peace. The Lord loved the child and sent word through Nathan the prophet that he should be named Jedidiah for the Lord's sake, which means loved by the Lord. I love these two verses that are nestled here because, again, it shows us God's willingness to forgive, God's willingness to restore. He, he, he completely forgives. There's, there's none of this holding it over their heads. No, God completely forgives. And the text tells us the east is from the west. The Lord forgives our sin. And Jedediah Solomon, is a constant reminder, God, you are gracious and you forgive And that leads us to the third point about genuine repentance. Genuine repentance displays a genuine change of heart, a real concern, and godly sorrow over one's actions, not in order to be forgiven, listen to this, but because of the harm caused to the glory of God and the hurt caused to others. You you have to wonder, is this the first time that Bathsheba knew the whole story? Is this the first time that David fell to his knees and said, I have sinned against God and you? What we do see is he wraps her in his arms and says, I- I'm sorry. And I love you. <laughs> wow. Psalm 51 states, Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. In other words, true repentance is not a reform of actions, it's a heart change that results in actions. True repentance is not an embarrassment. It's not lip service. It's not a plea for leniency. It's not a means to win friends and appease others. It's not a temporary reprieve of the situation. It's not an avoidance of real issues. It is a heart change that results in actions. That's true repentance. Kevin DeYoung writes, Genuine repentance is not a convenient escape hatch after a weekend of a life of folly. It means admitting specific wrong, recognizing your offenses to God, changing course, turning to Christ, and wishing with all your heart you had never made that mistake you now despise. I can guarantee you, David never went on the rooftop again and got out the goggles, the binoculars. He was done with that. He had learned his lesson. May it not take a paddle for us to learn some very important lessons. But God is not afraid to paddle. Now, the text is not done, and this gets good. Look at verses, sometimes... Bible studies. We'll skip over these next few verses. They're vital to the whole scene because not only does God show his love to David and Bathsheba, but look what he does for David. So Joab fought against Rabbah. This whole scene in 2 Samuel 11 began with with the whole battle with the Ammonites at Rabbah, and now it ends with this the Ammonites, and he captured the royal city. Joab sent messengers to David. I have fought against Rabbah and I've captured the water supply. I mean, this siege is almost about to end. So now assemble the rest of the army and besiege the city and capture it. Otherwise, I will capture the city and it will be named after me. Man, Joab shows some real integrity here. He says, David, you're king. Get down here and do the job. This will be the last major battle David fights, according to the Scripture. So, David assembled the army, went to Rabbah, fought against it, captured it. He talks about all the spoils. He says, And then David and all of his army returned to Jerusalem. Don't miss this. It's as if God is saying, I'm restoring you. David, you should have been with your men from the get go, and now you're doing the job. You know, this is the problem with living in sin everything seems to be okay. You tell the world you're okay. This is how it is. This is what I feel. But deep down, if you're a follower of Jesus, there is no victory. There has to be an emptiness, a hollowness, a joyless. There's something eating at your soul. There better be, and that's the Holy Spirit who's indwelling and working in you. I had a former student who decided to go a particular lifestyle. Came to my office, told me, I said, are you still placing your faith in Christ? Yes. You know this is sin? Well, I don't know, but uh, this is where my faith is. Okay. Here's my number. When the Lord brings you down to your knees, call me. And three months later at two o'clock in the morning, I got a phone call. God does not mess with sin, as we've seen here. And as we have seen here with David there's finally this internal battle the Lord has resolved, and that's why in Psalm 51, David can say, renew a steadfast spirit in me, and David now steps out in faith, recognizing God's forgiveness to do the role that God had called him to do, and this is the last one. Genuine repentance claims God's forgiveness and reinstatement. Perhaps this morning you're saying, yeah, that, that, that's me. I, I blew it <laughs> a long time ago. And you've been sitting on the sidelines. Thankfully, Peter didn't do that, nor David. God forgives, and we need to move forward. So as we look at this text, it's a heavy one, isn't it? It's a bummer when we see someone who's sinned, and you see the consequences Recently, I was looking on Facebook of an individual I had grew up with and I showed a, the person's photo to my kids and said, this is what happens when you live in sin. They looked awful. Looked like they were 105. And they're my age. The, the effects of sin upon that individual's life. Genuine repentance freely acknowledges our sin. Genuine repentance is accompanied by a spirit of brokenness and humility. Genuine repentance displays a genuine change of heart. And finally, genuine repentance claims God's forgiveness and reinstatement. We're going to do something a little different this morning. I've asked the musicians to come forward. Perhaps you're here this morning, and you've... Never turn to the Lord for salvation. You've never ever come to grips with your sin, and that there is a God who is holy, who demands perfection. And the good news is that can be met, but only through Jesus Christ, who came to earth and died on a cross for our sins. He paid our price. And Romans three says, For all have sinned. There's no one exempt. I don't care how good you are, there's still an area of sin. I love the analogy. You can make a pizza, you put dog food on one little portion, I'm not eating your pizza. You know, there's still sin. And before a holy God, it's unacceptable. And we've all fallen short of the glory of God. But verse 24 says, we're justified, made right by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. So perhaps you're here that this morning and that's you. You need to turn your life over to Christ. You need to recognize that he is your Lord and Savior. Perhaps this morning you continue, those of you who claim to know Christ, continue to play with sin. You're tarnishing the name of the Lord. And you might think like David, nine months of respite, all's well with the world. It's time to join David and declare, I have sinned and bend your knee. Perhaps you've given the lip service, but no real action has ever occurred. You just keep doing the same thing. You ask forgiveness, saying, oh, next time, I know he'll forgive me. Paul has some words about that. Should we keep on sinning that grace may abound? And he says, absolutely not. God is not to be trifled with. Perhaps you've asked forgiveness. You, you came to a point, yet yeah, you blew it, you've bent the knee, you asked for forgiveness, but you are still wallowing in the guilt and the shame. Thankfully, David didn't do that. It's time to claim God's forgiveness and get busy. There's a spiritual battle that needs to be fought. So this morning, what we're going to do, I'm going to have the instrumentalist play and just give us some time to reflect. Bow our hearts before the Lord. Maybe there's something you need to confess. After we're done, I'll pray. So let's just spend some time in prayer. We just thank you for your grace, your willingness to forgive. It's so vividly displayed on Calvary. Will you send your son to atone for our sin? And Lord, I must confess, at times we just take that for granted. I take it for granted, and the ugly side comes out. And you're like, no, 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 no. I need to be reminded of what you've done for me, just as you did with David. And I have a keen awareness that is an affront to you. As you stated to David, ultimately, you are despising me. Lord, that's not what we want. We want to be pure, holy people living for you, ambassadors for you. So Father, this morning, We confess. It means to be forgiven for that albatross that's hung around the neck for so long to be lifted and to be free in Christ. And it's whose name we pray.